Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily. Join us every Sunday at 7.30 p.m. for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked. Episode 13 of the Bible Unmasked. If this is your first time tuning in, the Bible Unmasked is ultimately a Bible study that we're doing as a church here at Plantation SDA. Um, it's aired every Sunday night at 7:30 on YouTube and on PlantationSDA.tv. Um, the goal of Bible Unmasked is for everyone to go through the entire Bible um, throughout 2021. What happen, what's happening is we have a reading plan that's shared weekly during Sabbath service and on social media. And of course, if you are tuning in and you have any family or friends that may be interested in what we're doing and what we're studying here, then of course, invite any family, friend members to sit down, um, research with you, study with you, pray with you. And if you have any questions that come up during that discussion, feel free to text it to 954-388-8780. Eight seven eight zero. Because what happens is each week, as we're doing now, you, um, the pastors and Principal Stevenson will come and address any questions that we have. Um, and if you weren't aware, also if you if you want to get updates every time a new episode airs, make sure you subscribe to Plantation SDA's YouTube channel, and that way you'll be automatically notified of any future episodes or any other live stream events that we have. So tonight, we have two guests with us this evening. Um, first, we have our presenter. That will be Pastor Kevin McCoy. Hello, Pastor Kevin. How are you? I am well. I am well. Happy to be with you again for another series of the another episode of the Bible Unmasked. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. And then we have my illustrious co-host, Miss Karina Edwards. How are you this evening? Hey everyone, I'm good. Happy to be here. Perfect. Now, Karina, do you mind opening us up with a word of prayer so we can begin? Sure, no problem. Bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together virtually to just read the Bible and go over everything that we've learned. I ask that um, you bless those who are watching and just us as well as we have this discussion let it be fruitful let it be productive and i hope that all of us who are tuning in will learn something this is my prayer in jesus name i pray amen amen amen, amen. so amen. just a quick discussion of, of what we're going to be going through so first just a recap last week's reading was on judges 4 through 21 um pastor mccoy do you have a moment to just kind of give a, a recap of where we were last week so we can kind of segue into this week right so um the the deuteronomic the, the book of judges is a part of what we call the deuteronomic history and it shows how israel interacts with uh with god's with god's covenant um when they are uh, when they're disobedient, God raises up a leader for them um, in the person of a judge who gives them victory. Then they turn away from God and uh, then a judge. So it's it's this, this ebb and flow of obedience and disobedience towards God's will and how God has always been faithful in raising up someone to lead the Israelites um, um, to, 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 in the pursuit of the promised land um, as a went through the conquest with Joshua and all of that. So it's about Israel 
um, living out their, their covenant relationship as we have seen many times before. Perfect, thank right. you. And this week's reading um, was taken from Ruth 1 to 1 Samuel 18. So Pastor McCoy, again, can you first give a quick recap of what we read in um, these last couple chapters for this week of Bible Unmasked? Right, so the, in the book of Ruth, we are, are we're seeing a, a family story, um, but a very important family story. It's, it's unique because in the sense that you have the relationship, the family relationship between Israel, an Israelite and a Moabite family. And you find out how to that relationship and that family that God establishes Israel, Israel's future um, is established. Um, we see the line of David outlined in the closing chapters. And then in the book of Samuel, we see um, kind of a, a, a judge situation going back to the book of Judges, how Samuel himself is a judge. And then we see where Israel develops as a monarch under Saul. And uh, um, his, again, how he relates to God in terms of the requirements for, for being a king in Israel and how he disobeyed that. And, and then God raises up David. Um, so it's always going back to this idea of covenant relationship, whether it is as a community or whether it is um, as a monarchy um, in, in Saul, Saul and David's um, situation. So now we're going to go right into, we're going to dive right into the questions. We have quite a few of them this evening. So Ms. Karina is going to start us out with some questions. And Pastor McCoy, we're excited to hear what you have to say. Thanks. Okay. okay so the first question um, refers to Ruth 1 verse 15. Right. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. So the person is asking, Naomi encouraged Orpah to return to her gods. As Christians, is it okay to encourage non-Christians to worship their gods? So what we are seeing in the, in the text, for, first and foremost, um, is evidence of, of the, the worship of multiple gods, right? Um, many people um, had many gods. And how it worked was this, when a, when a, conquer, a, a conquered people would take on the gods of the conquerors. And, and, and this idea of developing that this, this many gods for, many, for, for, for a nation or for people was a, a regular practice. For, for Naomi to say to, to her daughter-in-law, go back to, to your gods, was, it was not something, I mean, for us, it might sound shocking. It might sound shocking for us to say, well, uh, you're, telling us, you're telling her to go back and, and worship her gods. It was not shocking to them. But the shocking part about the story is that she actually rejected her gods for the God of Israel. That is where the shock really comes into the story. That's where a turn comes in the story right now, where there was no legal obligation. There was no, under no circumstance was, was she obligated to worship our, 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 our fellow Naomi's God, but by choice, right? She, she rejected Naomi's suggestion to return and, and submitted to her God, to, to, to Naomi's God. So for us, is it for us, do we encourage people to worship other gods? No, we understand uh, as Christians and, and our, our belief is in one God. And we don't believe in idolatry or anything like that, our, our worshiping of other gods. And so our intent or our, our goal is to bring others into the family of God. And we're going to see throughout the story how as much as it's not so much, you don't hear much of God in this story about Ruth, right? You're going to see how God is working behind the scenes, still fooling God's sovereign will and God's power in, in the story. 
we don't encourage non-Christians to say, go and worship like uh, other gods or whoever. We are saying to them, we are, we are bringing you into a relationship with the creator, the God who created you. That's the God we want you to serve. And reality is some people identify this creator by different names, but we, we identify Jesus Christ as the one who was in creation, the creator um, through whom God created this world and whom God has re redeemed this world. And so our encouragement is for others to come and, and meet Jesus, not to go and seek other gods. The next question actually is from the very next verse. Right. Um, and it says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. Now, the question is, obviously, in this case, it's not a wedding vow. Um, and it says, isn't it an abusive use of this passage to employ it as a marriage vow? Marriage vows have been uh, uniquely written um, based on the development of the experience of, of those in the relationship. And so you've seen where couples write their own, their own vows. If, if a couple feels that the language of this text embodies their experience and reflects the, the, the depth of their relationship, they have that option. But there is a normalized um, 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 vows, you know, till death do us part. It, it's not far from that. Where, where you die, I will, it's not far from that. Um, so it's, as we said, it's not a, a wedding vow, but people express their, their, the depth of their relationship in vows, which can be embodied in this for, for some couples. Um, so it's, it's, it's a matter of choice. Yeah. Okay, so the next question, um, it comes from Ruth 3, verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And this is the question. In this story, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. How is that mission, which prefigures Jesus Christ, compatible with his drunkenness? Is this kinsman redeemer still applicable today? Again, uh different setting the as a as the, as the redeemer as a kingsman redeemer we we saw in a story where even before exercising that right um boaz tried to give someone else the opportunity and we're gonna, we're gonna go, go on to that right but in terms of its compatibility with with christ and the work that christ has done and in relation to i think the question asked something about drunkenness christ fulfilled this role in all in all sobriety even when they were on the cross giving him, uh, I think it was vinegar or something like that. Christ had a clear mind in establishing this role. But you're going to see in also the story, the, the media story we're talking about, that Boaz shows some clear-mindedness, even though it's, it's, it's suggested that he is, is drunken, right? Because in the early morning, he tells her, you know, go away in a certain way that, you know, nothing, um, no bad image is given off of me or of you. And then when we go out, it seems, right? So... The drunkenness, we, 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 we can say that that's not applicable to Christ as, as, the, as the Redeemer. But Christ took on that role where we now have heritage. We have now, we are now heirs to the kingdom of God because Christ redeemed us from, from the law of sin. Christ redeemed us from sin. And so in a similar way, how Boaz, you know, brought honor to Naomi and, and her sons and, and the family history, Christ has brought uh, honor to God's name by redeeming us from the from the, from sin and, and its power and making us here to the kingdom of God. So 
it's still compatible. Is, it, is, it, is the King's Meridian still compatible today? There are places and ways in life where, where people are at a point in your life where they're unable to help themselves. And we need each other in a way like that to, to come and help us in our burdens, help us in our various difficulties. And so while it's not applicable in the terminology and the way in which it was applied in, in the biblical times, we still need each other to, to help us along the way, right? I'm your uh, king's person, Redeemer, and you're, 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 you are mine, right? We help each other get out of difficult circumstances and bring honor to the, to, to the Christian family and to the name we bear as Christians. That idea of the Kingsman Redeemer is actually a really interesting one. That could, that's a whole Bible study in itself. I um, yeah, read yeah. up on that. I think they call it the Goel, if I remember. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Goel. Yes. And I remember reading about that and it's just, it's huge. This next one's very interesting. Um, this one's taken from Ruth 4, verses 4 and 5. And the verses say, I thought I should speak to you. And this is from Boaz. Boaz is speaking right now. And it says, I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. Um, if you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, if your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who would carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. The question is, was there any room for love or was marriage only a transaction in those days? With the high divorce rate, this is the part two, with the high divorce rate we currently have, should we go back to arranged marriages? Um, it says, where, where the, was there room for love or was marriage only a transaction? Both, right? Remember when, when um, uh, in, with the patriarchs, I think it was, Abraham was, was looking for a son, for, for a wife, for, for, for his son, right? And he sent back to his home country. That was kind of a, a arranged marriage. But then we see in a situation with Jacob and with, with, um, with, with, with both wives, that one was actually love, one was transaction, right? <laughs> we, saw both, we saw both in certain both circumstances. One was love, one was a transaction because, and, and we saw where love was dominant because he waited, uh, um, I think, seven more years to really get the wife of his love, right? Um, so both, both were, were, were practices of the day, um, marriage for love and marriage as a, as a transaction. And um, as a transaction, um, you can take, for example, and we're going to go to that way down, but you take the example, we're jumping ahead of, if you take the example of, of, of uh, King Solomon, what marriage did was to strengthen ties, right? And so those, the weak, the, the, the weak or the more insignificant families gained notoriety. They gained power um, by marrying into more powerful and more richer families. And so it was a very important and significant social transaction to gain social, social capital in the community, uh, though as a, as, a, as a marriage transaction. So yes, it was important. Today, um, go back, well, first of all, in certain, in certain uh, um, circles and in certain countries, arranged marriages are still practiced. Have they worked? Um, apparently some have worked, have some failed? Apparently, yes. With the higher divorce rate, should we go back to arranged marriages? Um, my opinion, I don't think, that, that's the best way to go. I think it's important for individuals to come together and ex 
with, a, with, an, in, with, a, with, a, with an idea, with a full knowledge rather, with full knowledge of who they are, their, their personality, their strengths, their weaknesses, their history, and see how that is compatible um, with others. And that's also spiritual compatibility, social compatibility. Um, those are, have, are things that I've seen to, to prove um, sustainable for marriages. So I think it's better for people to be deliberate, be prayerful about, about relationships and especially for marriage, given the divorce rate. So I would say um, choose, choose through the medium of prayer. Choosing through the medium of prayer is, is the best model. Okay, so the next question is actually from 1 Samuel 1, um, verse two. This is actually a pretty interesting question. Elkina had two wives, Hannah and Correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong. Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. The question is, why can't men have multiple wives today? Why couldn't women have multiple husbands in biblical times? Why? First of all, let me say this. There is, and for, when we read it, we, I want this to be something that we take into consideration as we read these um, polygamous stories. There are very few times we find moral judgment on them in the Old Testament, right? Very few times. I just want to be, cl be clear about that in going into what I'm saying. There are very few times we find moral judgment on polygamous relationships, right? And in this case, there's, there's, there's none, right? But we know that from the beginning, and, and we, we, we take there are a few ways that we can read the Bible. We can read it from a creation perspective. We can read it from a Christological perspective. And this text calls for obviously a creation perspective where God created male, female, and, and they were one, right? And so we want we, we, we take that as a as the frame of reference for other um, marital relationships. Um, the Genesis uh, um, story where it was one male, one, one female. Um, uh, one in, in one in one union, right? They were just two partners. So, why can't men have multiple wives today? Um, as Christians, as Seventh Adventists, we subscribe to the biblical perspective that uh, the union is between two persons, right? Between a male and a female, and that's what we that's what we subscribe to, right? I'm not saying that there aren't situations out there where these things are happening. But if you're submitting to a Christian perspective, if you're submitting to a Christian lifestyle, this is the way that we go, right? One male, one female, uh, right? Um, why can't men have multiple wives? Because we are going to the creation perspective. Why couldn't um, women have multiple husbands in biblical times? Uh, for the most part, it was a male-dominated society. Male had power. Women didn't have certain liberties as men did. And I don't know if women wanted would have wanted to have that liberty. I don't know what to say. Well, I, I, when I was reading that question, I, I figured like I don't know what the society societal mindset was, but I figured it also had to do with the um, multiplication of families. So I figured right. women can only be pregnant once for nine months, and that's it. But a guy could get twenty women pregnant in a day. Right, right, and and good. So that was the that was the mindset that I went to with that. I mean, I didn't care for it. Doesn't mean I I appreciated the reasoning, but it, it it was a more logical mindset as people were building their tribes and their families and things like that. Right, and because of the society in which 
males only went to males only went to war, right? And um, uh, sons were, were 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 prime. I mean, sons made the workforce of the household. They carried on the family line, and they also were a supply for the military line, <laughs> right? And so children, were, as you mentioned, was it was very important for women to be producing children on and on and on. And it's a different society today. That's not how we approach life today. Um, whether that's, that's whether, and we can, we, people can make judgments of whether or not that society was better than this society um, that we live in today. And um, people are, are free to do that, right? But we understand why it was happening. Even, and let me say this, even though there was no moral judgment, there was also no divine backing for those kind of relationships. Right, so let me just clarify that. Even though there was no no moral, moral you know, say it was wrong for him, the, the divine voice did not um, um, command it or, or support it in 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 various ways. Right, so that's important to note on that point. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting topic. We could even continue on that one because I I won't lie. I noticed a pattern that has always kind of struck me with arranged marriages, and I know we don't like to belabor one question too long, but I did notice that. It seems like usually in the transactional marriage, like for example, Leia um, and Penaniah, I think her name is, sorry, I think it's Penaniah, I believe. But um, they were the ones that were more transactional and they also seem to have more children. It seems like in my, just from my point of view, that the ones that they loved and they wanted or whatever always seem to have issues. So it's not really a question having children and had to plead to God, Hannah had to plead, Rachel had to plead, you know, so... Just a random observation that we can probably dig into at another time, but yeah. I have noticed that as well. So I didn't get a chance to really study that portion to see if there was some type of biblical commentary on it, but just wanted to know that I I, I noticed that. <laughs> so we'll go on to the next question. Good catch, good catch. <laughs> All right. So the next question is from 1 Samuel one eleven, And in this one, this is when... Um, so this is Hannah when she goes to the temple and she's pleading out to God um, about her, her request for a son. So the verse says, and she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. Then the question is, should Christian women who can't have children promise to dedicate any children to God? Um, give them to him and to never cut their hair? Um, and then is it a guarantee that God will answer their prayer when such promises are made? And this is, um, there are many, many uh, uh, females who would be wonderful moms. And it's, it's, it pains their heart that they, they are unable to produce. And um, it's, 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 a, it's difficult. It's difficult for those who would want that joy, who want that, 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 you know, the blessing of bringing a child into the world. And so it's, it's difficult. So uh, a prayer like this, I pray every time someone who, who, you know, who wants to start a family and, and has this passion and has this desire for childbearing, I, I pray to God that every time they pray that prayer, that it would happen. If I have the power to grant that, I would. But unfortunately, that is in God's hands. And so the, the, the idea that, that the giving of a child was connected to a promise in prayer was to to show it was a part of the narrative a narrative um, um, a narrative feature of the text, but it also brings a very important point to us that 
she wanted so much to please God and not so much to brag on her rival, right? There was this kind of divine purpose that was in this because in getting the child, she was going to give the child back to God. So the motive in it was very important to observe, right? The promise was connected to God blesses me, I give it, give back to God for God's work and for God's blessing of the nation of Israel because you're going to find that, as we will see in the text, that in that time, um, the word from God was rare, I think, rare, I think that the text says. So we are building up to a narrative point where God provides a miracle by giving this woman a child who had none, but the child that she should have kept, she wanted so much that she should have kept for, her, for herself, she actually gave back to God, right? The sacrifice, the commitment to God's purpose, to God's will, that is kind of the essence of, of that, right? So yes, we can pray to God with a promise attached, but don't believe that because we attach a promise to it that God will answer. And this is my belief. Sometimes God doesn't even need us to pray for, for God to grant us our or, or, or requests. But God invites us to pray, to open our hearts to God, to get into a relationship with God, even if God is not going to grant us the request that we need. And so I, I feel a pain, um, not that I, I feel it as much as my, my sisters who want to bear children but cannot bear. I know it's difficult, it's hard, but I'm going to say keep praying, keep trusting. Um, we see it in the biblical re record that God has done it and God will do it. Will God do it for you? I can't tell you that. But I can tell you that as you pray to God, it will deepen your relationship. God will reveal to you what God's will for you is. And it will certainly um, clarify your understanding of who God is and how God is working with you. But my prayer is that if you pray it, God will grant it. Will God grant it? I don't know. So the next question, 1 Samuel 1.17. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. And is, do today's pastors have the authority to grant prayer requests? Wow, that's deep. <laughs> do pastors have the power to grant prayer requests? Ah, uh, no. Well, well, let's let's say, let me let me let me take my, my answer a little bit. Let's say you say, um, uh, you're praying for something that I have in my power to, 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 to grant you. Uh, fine. God is using me in that moment. But uh, typically, um, pastors do not have that power. That power resides with God alone. Right? Um, but in the text, what, 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 what Samuel is, is doing, what Eli is doing rather, is something that is a role of the pastoral office. Right? affirming and granting a blessing um, upon the one upon upon a person's request right so it's when he says go in peace right may the god of israel grant the request you have asked of him it's an, it's, a, it's giving the person permission to go out in faith believing trusting that god will work right it's an affirmation of faith if you will Right, affirming the person's prayer, affirming the person's faith that the God who you you have prayed to has been working on it. Right, so go in peace. Don't worry about it. Don't don't. You know, and and sometimes you know you've heard it say that um, um some of us we are we are we are we are deep sea divers. Right, we we pray we pray about things and and um and we throw it away and and when God is is 
seems to, to tarry a little bit, we go back and we take up the, the problems and we put them on our shoulders. We don't want to do that, right? We want to go in peace. We want to go with a certain kind of assurance, a kind of faith, a kind of trust, um, believing that God's going to do it. And so that's, I think that's what, what Eli was doing, right? Sending, sending off in faith and trust, um, believing that God will work and not necessarily granting um, a prayer request. So this next question, um, it looks like this is right after Hannah has been blessed with a child. And this is a difficult question for many people, but it, it, the Bible verse says, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So the question is, why don't some women ever receive the child, a child from the Lord, no matter how much they pray? It's one, it's one that as I mentioned earlier, brings pain to a number of our sisters' hearts, a number of, of couples' hearts, you know, who, who want to bear children. It's, it's difficult. But, but the question, again, um, why, why, why they don't receive? Um, why? Yeah. Why don't, yeah, so why don't they receive from God like a, a child or a children? Uh, I can't say for certain. Um, sometimes we find, you, you, well, we find, but there are medical reasons, uh, very different reasons. Uh, but when you, when you look at the biblical record, you see where God has done the impossible. And so I can understand why some women question and wonder if God, you know, if a woman who was in, 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 maybe 90, I think 90 or 80 years old, um, Sarah could have a child. If like Elizabeth, um, you know, in the New Testament, why, why, why not me? Why not my, you know, a husband might be asking, why not my, my spouse, why not my wife? Um, and, and, and I wish I had the right answer or the answer that could say, here is a solution. But that's, that's a searching into God's will that I, I, I do not have access to. But what I, I do believe is that God, God can be trusted even in those difficult times. And I've seen where, where it, you know, couples are, are unable to produce for themselves, but they have instead adapted. And, um, and uh, the truth is those, those children receive a blessing from God by, by being adopted. And so that's, that's one option that can be considered. Um, and, and, you know, it pains my heart because there's some you 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 might have heard on the news or read it in the paper or something or see it somewhere where a child was found um, in a basket somewhere. A child was found in in the garbage bin or, or, or and it pains it pains people's heart because there are some people who would be very good parents, but the gift of parenthood of bearing children well not not of parenthood but the gift of of childbearing has has been withheld from them. But the gift of parenting has not been withheld, right? And so while, and I don't want to speak to, to, to someone who is going through this, while you, the couple or the person might be unable to, to bear a child, you still have the gift of, of parenting. And so however God is working with you in this moment, as you seek to extend the love of God um, in procreation or, or in adoption, um, you still have the gift of parenting and you can be a blessing to a child who needs you as a parent. And so if you're unable to, to bear a child, please consider um, adoption and, and, and bless a child. That was a lot. That was yeah. difficult. <laughs> yeah. 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 
and and uh, I I know because you know having just having my my firstborn I I know the joy and I'm telling you it's it's a joy and I can I can understand how how it's painful for others who who would not um, experience that so so I I'm praying and I'm and I'm hoping that God will will deliver um, for someone who's who's having that experience. Okay, so our next question is from First Samuel two verse 12 and 28. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Verse 28 says, did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the son of Israel? Now this person had two questions. Are pastors' children at high risk of straying away from God? What can they do to keep them in the faith? And the second part of the question is, if Samuel wasn't a Levite, how could he, how could he serve at the temple? I cannot speak from experience, um, as, as you would know. But having colleagues who have um, old children and listening to other pastors' stories um, about the the, the the challenge of raising a child in the church, even when you pastor at that church, um, pastor in a church, it's it, it can be difficult. And one 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 of the things that cause cause that is because the demands of the church are so much on the pastor. Sometimes the pastor neglects their own family, right, in in service of the church. Um, and there are other times when uh, pastors do instill principles in their children. But then uh, peer pressure, influence, so many other things um, cause um, children to stray like, like anybody else. So let me just clarify this. A pastor's child is still a child, meaning the child is still susceptible to all the, the influences um, that are out there. So is it difficult? Um, it can be because as a child of a pastor, there is more expectation, there's more responsibility upon the child to live up to a certain standard, even from a young age, that prevents them from living out truly their childhood. Um, because there are different stages of development that children go through with different um, um, developmental issues, depending on your age. So if children are not given the opportunity to, to truly go through those experiences um, with, with the support of the, their parents, whether they are pastors or not, then children can really step aside from the way they have been, they have been raised or, or trained earlier. Um, and so, yes, um, pastors' children are, are very susceptible, uh, are they very high at risk because of the demanding nature also uh, of pastoral ministry uh, upon the family. Uh, so, yes, uh, the, the second question, if Samuel wasn't a Levi, how, was he, how could he serve at the temple? Well, you're going to see from his birth that God has, been, as I said, God has been working in his life. He was chosen, as it, as it were, right? He, he came about as a miracle, and he was given to God in complete service. He was, com he was committed to God even before birth. And so it, 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 while he might not have been of the tribe of, of Levite, we find in the story, the flow of the narrative, that God has had chosen him to serve in various perspectives. You're going to see that he's a Levite. Um, he's priest, no, not rather, he's priest, he's judge, he serves, he's prophet, he serves various functions in the Israelite community. And based on the narrative, that's God's plan for him, um, based on how he, he, he came into the world through prayer and his mother surrendering him to God's service. So that's how I, I would say that based on the narrative flow of it, it's God's choosing 
to, to have him serve as a Levite. So this question comes from 1 Samuel 3, verses 1, and it says, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. The question says, were God's messages rare because the Israelites were disobedient? You're going to see that that is one of the cases. That's a part of the issue that um, Israel was not following God's will. And, and look, for instance, as we mentioned, we were talking about, uh, I think we spoke about a while ago, even Eli's sons, right? Those who were supposed to serve in the temple and serve honorably uh, and, and justly. They themselves were not serving in the in the right way, and it would seem also that Levi, um, Eli rather, um, had kind of turned up. In some ways, it would seem that he didn't, he wasn't strong on his sons enough, right, to turn them away. And so, even from his perspective, being, I think the text said he was one of the texts that he was blinded or something was happening with his eye. We can take that as a, as, as a narrative feature to say that he had a spiritual issue. He wasn't seeing clearly even spiritually too, right? And so you, you trace the spiritual leadership of Israel at that time, Eli's sons, there was disobedience and it suggested that there was disobedience all around. And so that might be a cause where, uh, as a as question asked, the reason for God, for there were be, being rare visions and, and rare word from, the, from, from God. Um, but we can see also the importance of, of Samuel in this context, right? Where God's word is rare, but you, you, you found in the you found in the temple a woman praying who, they, who her husband thought she was drunken. She gives her son over to God. Here we're going to find that suddenly when God's visions and, and, and words were rare, this young boy is going to start hearing God's voice. <laughs> Right. So that's kind of it's kind of a, a narrative tension. It's rare. But look, Eli is not hearing God's voice, as it were, his sons. But look, it's a little boy who is hearing God's voice, little Samuel. Right. So it's a, it's a part of the, the narrative tension to, to, to heighten the, the story. Um, the next question is I actually found it pretty interesting. It says it's from First Samuel 314. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his, and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. The question is, mm. are there sins that can never be forgiven? What are those sins? Should we refrain from sharing God's word with those whose sins will never be forgiven? The only sin that is unforgivable is a sin that is not confessed and repented of. All right, let me start by saying it that way. Because the question asks, are there sins that can never be forgiven? When you look in the when you look in in the in, in the passage, there are a few times when it says that Eli's sons didn't walk in his way, right, or in the way of the Lord. There are a few times in the in, I don't remember where they are right now, but there are a few times um, throughout this, the narrative if we hear that saying, right, showing that there is some intensifying of their turning away from God, right. Um, they're, they're, they're coming in and taking their fork and they're, they're sticking it in the pan um, and, and rubbing the meat before it's even offered before God at the temple. These guys are supposed to be setting the example, but God is punishing um, them and, and, and the entire lineage. But we remember also that God says, and, and it is in the, the commandment, right? Showing mercy unto what? Thousands of them that what? Love me and? Obey my commandments. Right, right. And, and, and in that sentence, it's, it's generational because we find again that, and, right, 
we find that same line that the sin of, of, of one generation will be accounted for by another. In the text, there were opportunities for them to, to give up and to change. That's a suggestion that they continue to walking. They're, they're not walking in their father's way. So sins, are there sins that can never be forgiven? The ones that have never been um, confessed. And should we refrain from uh, sharing God's words with those who sin will never be forgiven? We cannot force people's choice um, to turn away from evil, but we can still continue to make suggestions, guide them, you know, encourage them along the, the pathway of righteousness, right? But um, there's always an opportunity for those who want to be forgiven of their sins to be forgiven their sins. God is gracious. Um, uh, that's what God said to Moses when God was turning God's back, right? God was merciful, long-suffering. So while this might seem, um, and, and we see instances of this as we've been, as we've been studying so far, where it suggests that God is kind of retributive and God is kind of harsh and hard. But as we look at the harshness and hardness that comes forward, we always see stubbornness on the part of those who God is speaking to, right? Like the sons uh, of Eli um, in, in this instance. So the sin that can never be forgiven is a sin that is not confessed to God who is willing and ready to forgive the sins of those who confess them. Um, the next question is actually taken from 1 Samuel 3, verses 12 and 13, and 1 Samuel 4, verse 18. Verses say, I am going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. When the messenger mentioned what happened to the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. The question is, did God punish Eli for his son's sins? Does God punish us for the sins of others? And if so, why? As the text suggests, uh, Eli bears some responsibilities for his son's behavior, right? Um, because I think it's in uh, 13, it says, For I told him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So here God is placing responsibility also on Eli for his son's behavior. He didn't restrain them. He did not um, rebuke them as it were and tell them to change their ways. So based on this, God is holding him responsible. And I think it's, it's suggesting something about... Um, the responsibility of, of parents and children, right? The responsibility to rear children in, in the ways of God and also parents' responsibility in that, in that regard. So God is, yes, in this instance, it is apparent punishing um, Eli for his son's sins because he facilitated their sinfulness, facilitated them blaspheming God against God by not rebuking them and turning them away, um, away from sin. So does God do that today? I, I'm waiting to see that in parent and parenthood. I am I'm waiting <laughs> to see that. Um, uh, uh, but but sometimes it might not come across as a punishment. But you've seen the hurt and pain that children have caused their parents, right? Um, and also the joys that children have brought their parents, having made them proud. So while it might not be punishment in the sense of punishment for sins. We see the hurt and the pain and the agony 
parents go through when 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 they may have lost their their, their child you know some would say prematurely or their children doesn't follow the ways of God or are you know turn to another life an alternative lifestyle or something it, it pains the parents heart and somehow some would say you know it's it's a judgment on, on them someone would say it's a judgment for them for not parenting their child in the ways of God or they they weren't hard they weren't strict enough on their child I don't know right but it's it's a possibility that someone could could say that way right but in, in terms of the text, we see evidence that God was punishing Eli for his son's sins. Um, but the call for us then is that those who have responsibility over guiding people morally and in injustice and in rightness bear responsibility when we are silent in the face of wrongdoing, when we are silent in the face of injustice, blasphemy, blasphemy against God, or wrongdoing, or evil, or sin, then we, in some ways, bear responsibility for the, the, the perpetuation or continuation of those sinful deeds. If you're pretty much condoning and looking the other way while someone does something, then you start to bear some responsibility because you're not starting to, you're not even attempting to right, help right. on the right path. So and when you think about it that way, then yeah, I can see. I can see the parents taking on some of the sin. So... Um, this next one sounds like a more of a clarific, um, clarification question. So this is from 1 Samuel 6, um, verse 19. And it says, But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. The question is, how many people did God slay because they looked into the ark of the covenant? In the New King James Version, it suggests 50,070. And in the New International Version, it suggests just 70. So which one is it? Uh, different versions of the Bible are made from different manuscripts of the Bible. And sometimes there are variants. This, obviously, because the New King James Version is using one manuscript and the NIV is using one manuscript, there's obviously a variant um, in this text, in, in both of those. But the, 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 the most important thing is why the numbers, you know, of how many were slain is important. A question that pushes us, pushes us further is why were they slain, right? Um, the number is important. But the question that pushes us further is why, why were they slain? Um, because they looked into the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, as we know, the, the Ark of the Covenant um, was, was a part of the, of the temple, right? In the, in the most holy place, right? Where, where the, the glory of God, you know, shone from, the Shekinah glory of God shone from, right? It was as if it were the presence of God. And so maybe it's how they, uh, they approach this symbolic representation of God's presence. Were they not reverent enough? Did they take it lightly? What was their attitude towards that, Right? Um, and you can see, and, and there's a reason, as you trace the story, you can see how powerful, right, this ark, the representation of God is. When it came into the Israelite camp, the Israelites shouted and the, the Philistines were like, man, what is happening in there? And they're like, the, a God has come in their midst. And right, and the Philistines, they were fearful. And the Israelites, now because the ark of God was among them, they felt so powerful that they could take on anyone, Right. But if they were, they were approaching the Ark of Covenant without following God's direction because they went to war and what happened? What happened, right? Um, they lost the battle and they also lost the Ark of the Covenant, which when taken into Philistine camp, 
was causing havoc for so many of the Philistine camps. They, they, they took it from one camp. The, the, the gods were just falling over. Dagon and so many other gods. So many um, tumors were coming upon them. Talking about the power of God's presence um, in that symbol of, of the ark, right? So the, the, the greater question is, why were they slain? And I think it's about how they approached the kind of reverence or the attitude with which they approach this symbolic presence of God among them. Every time I hear one of these stories about people being struck down, I think of um, what the, the Korah, the group of the yeah, Korah. Yeah. That the the yeah. ground just swallowed them up. I don't know. That's the first time my mind always goes to that's such an interesting story. Yeah. I'm waiting to see like that a live action version of that Bible story. <laughs> but um, so this next question says, First Samuel 8, 3, but his sons did not follow his way. So this is similar to one of the questions we, we've asked previously, but I guess it's slightly from a different angle. So, but his sons did not follow his ways. Um, they're referring to Eli and his sons again. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. And I'm oh, sorry, Samuel's sons. So it says, question, wouldn't it be normal for Samuel's sons to follow the ways of their godly father? And did Samuel fail in their education? Wouldn't it be normal? Um, yeah, they say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, that's not always, <laughs> that's just a saying, but... Uh, someone would expect, again, and it goes back to, in our context, ministers of the gospel and um, pastors and their children, how that relationship, the grooming, the fostering uh, of Christian relationship and development of character. Um, it would seem that a natural thing would be for uh, his, his children to grow up and follow in his footsteps. Um, but then again, as I said, uh, previous question, uh, who knows what the influences are around them? Um, I wouldn't say a, 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 pair, a child's failure is necessarily a parent's failure, though in, in cases, in some cases, there they are. There are in some cases, right? But we see, we, we've may probably heard of our scene where parents have invested their entire being, their life into developing children, in, into their character, into soul, to making them the best they can. But then because a child has a choice, right? Um, uh, after growing up for so many years, a child can decide that after a certain age, I, I, I no longer want any of this, right? So it's, it's, it's not automatic that a child who, who is born to Christian parents will remain a, a Christian or grow up in, we pray that, we pray, we, we beg God that that's the case, right? That even if they, they depart from the way, they will come back some way, someday. That's our prayer. But the, it's not in all cases that a parent can be blamed. Right. There are cases where there is neglect from, from in parenthood and parenting, um, but it's not always the case. Um, in, in Samuel's case, um, it seems that, that these boys um, were, were bent on, on doing their own thing, right? Because they, did not, they just did not follow in his ways. That's it. And sometimes that's simply the case. Sometimes it's just, yeah. it's just their personality, their will, the, what they want. I mean... I've seen, I've seen literally no friends that were raised in the church. And the second they turned 18, they were, yeah. you know, you just pray for their return, but you know, they were there pathfinders doing it all choir, you name it. And the second they were able to run gone. Yeah. So it, it really is just keeping, keeping them in prayer and hoping that they, they come back. This next one was a really interesting one. So this one was first, first Samuel eight, six and seven, eight chapter eight, verses six and seven. So it says, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. 
And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The question is, since Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20 contains specific laws with regards to the kings of Israel, it's obvious that God knew they would end up having a king. Then why did God interpret their desire for a king as an act of rejecting him? Right. Um, so I'm going to read a few more verses in in verse in, in First Samuel eight. Just as they done to they just as they have done to me, from the day I brought them up from Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. So God is kind of giving a kind of explanation as to why. They, their choice for a king is rejecting God as their king, right? Um, for one, it's based on a comparison with the people around them, right? They want to be like the people around them. They have a king, we want a king. But if you notice, um, as we have been reading from, from the beginning of, of, our, of, of the Babylon mask, it has always been God developing a relationship with people, calling them out, choosing them to be a special people to God who will be a representation of God to the world, right? And so Israel has always been God's representative to the world in how they live, in how they function as a people um, through the laws, by obeying the laws of God that were meant for, for communal growth and for, for peace among them. Now, when they they ask for a king, right? Now, remember, Samuel was in one sense function, well, the terminologies are different, right? Because you had judges, right? But judges and kings functioned in a similar way, right? Even though they, they're not the, the, the same in terminology, there were similarity between, there are similarities between the functioning of judges and kings, as, as you, will, you will see. But here's what the difference is. When you read in the judges, it is God who, who raises up the judges. It's God who always raises up a judge, right? It's God who does the raising up of a judge. But here in this instance, when the king is, is proposed as a leader for Israel, it's the people who propose a king and not God who proposes a king. Here we have, have this, kind of, this kind of nuance, right? While there are similarities and differences between the role of the, of the judge and the king, in one instance, it's God who raises up a judge. But in this instance, it's the people who are asking for a king. And God had warned them, right? They, God had, as, as outlined, set principles as to how they would function. But Israel, wanting to be like their neighbors, wanting to, as it were, shun off their unique responsibility of representing God to the world, they were now becoming like the neighbors around them, right? And in rejecting a theocracy, they were now accepting a, um, um, a monarchy, right? The theocracy in which God is, is Israel's king, right? But in the background of all of these stories, and we're going to see coming up in, in, the, in the book, right? I'm, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, just a little bit to make this point. In the story of, of David and Goliath, we are going to see where the gods are going to be functioning. The, the gods are going to be in the, it's going to be a battle of the gods where David is, is calling upon his God to help defeat um, the, the, the Philistine and his God, right? Appealing again to God as kind of the king of Israel. So even though David is, you know, and, and Saul are uh, human representatives of, of kingship, 
God is still functioning in the background as this sovereign king um, over Israel, right? Even though they had asked for um, a, a human king, right? So in rejecting God as their king and as a sovereign being, they did that by accepting a human king among them. So this next one comes from 1 Samuel 9. And this sounds like more of a, a bit of a clarification um, between scrolls and translations and things like that. So this one says, 1 Samuel 9, verses 2. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. And the question says, does this passage, passage suggest that being handsome means being tall? Was Saul handsome or rather godly? And this is based off of different translations. Okay. Um, again, as you mentioned, a kind of a variant issue, right? Um but notice also they added the dimension that he was a head above everyone else, talking about the, his, his, his stature. We're going to see how important that comes. That's going to come back again to, to bite him, right? <laughs> right? As the tallest man, they're saying he's kind of the tallest one in Israel. We're going to see when the battle of David, the, the battle comes up with, with Goliath, that Saul, who was the tallest, right? Because it's significant to say that he's tall. This is... is a narrative insight into the future of what's coming in the, in the, in the, in the book, right? To say he's, he's a head taller speaks about his physique um, because he's going to be king. And that was important for Israel to follow someone who had the kind of stature. This was war, right? <laughs> you, you, need, you need to have the physique for war. You need to be, be tall, to be, swing, to, to be able to swing a, a large sword or carry a big shield or the, the weight of the armor or, or something. So yes, in one sense... It is about his, his physical appearance. We don't hear much about you know, his facial features, except that he was ahead, speaking about his, ta- his, 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 you know, his, his length. That's important, which will come again, I say, in the story. Can it be about his being handsome? Can it be about his, his, spiritual, his spiritual, spiritual character? It can be, because we're going to see again that Saul, uh, um, Saul, who had never in his life prophesied is going to come up and, and begin to prophesy among the prophets right so one can read that in that way based on the story that you know uh he's going to come and, and, and he's going to take on a spiritual role uh, because of his you know it's a spiritual dimension it's been mentioned and we see it in him prophesying we can read it that way um and we can also read about his length which will show up again in the story about him being a tallest in israel in the battle so both based on the narrative, seem to apply. So this next one, this is another kind of, you know, is is God evil kind of question. So this one is 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go, now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So the question is, why kill the innocent children and the animals? Wow. Yeah, this question keeps coming back and forth. I mean, this yeah, is- it comes back and forth for so many weeks. It tells again of God's, and, and in, in reality, this point has been made very strongly. God's sovereignty to do what God wills. That's, it's, it's an emphasis on God's sovereignty. But it's also the rules of engagement in war, right? And you're going to see it, I think coming up in the book of Samuel again, you're going to see it coming up how they're trying to get rid of all of, um, they encourage David to get rid of all of Saul's lineage. I think that's in the story when I was reading. But the point is, if you have an enemy, 
right? You want no reprisal. And in some instance, this is an act of, when you read it in the cultic thinking of the time, it was, this was sort of a, 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 um, an offering to God, right? Everything was an offering to God. The death of an animal was an offering. The, the, the death of the, some people were offering their children as offerings. So one, it is showing God's sovereignty, but it's also playing on the cultic practices of the day where the slain are seen as sacrifices um, um, to, to, to God. Not saying it's playing in, in, in Israel's in, in, in favor in relation to Israel's God, but it's something of the day. But God, when God wanted something done, God wanted com- done completely. And I, it was paying them back for their sins also against Israel, right? When they were, when they were journeying, it, this was a payback against Israel's enemy. That's God. Don't, don't play. The, the message is don't play with the God of Israel. Don't. don't that's really God exactly. That's, that's, uh, that's joined us for a few moments. Yes. It's, it's good to have him. <laughs> have him. <laughs> so, so it's funny because every time I think about why they, you know, kill innocent babies and children while it's off oh. that revenge movie that I think I mentioned the last time this question came up where you have uh, that one person who was left behind and then their whole life is planning their revenge. So that's how I always try to, I don't want to say rationalize it in my mind, but that's usually how I picture it. So this next question says, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is always an interesting one for me. And Mm -hmm. it says, does God send evil spirits to torment those that rebel against him? I think this was Paul who said where the spirit of the Lord is, there is peace. I think it was Paul who said that. I might be misquoting that right now. Now, like, like right now, where there's light, you know, darkness cannot exist in the presence of light, right? And so where God's spirit is, right, there is this kind of peace, this is kind of freedom. There is this kind of joy, this is kind of blessing. And we saw that in, in Saul's life, right? But the moment he began to disobey God, we saw where, and, and some have, read this from a psychological perspective as to whether he um, saw um, whether Saul developed um, mental issues. Some people have read it from that perspective that um, he had mental issues and that's why David had to play for him and it's music therapy to soothe him. Um, you, you'll hear people talk about that. But where God's presence is absent, there's room for, for evil to be present. And so in Deuteronomy, we read that the blessing and the curses are done by God based on obedience and disobedience. Here is a prime example, right, of that, where he disobeyed, he didn't, he, he spared the king, um, he offered a sacrifice that he shouldn't have offered. And all these things showed a, a kind of a progression in where the spirit of God was departing from him until an evil spirit came up from him, came upon him. Did God actively um, put an evil spirit upon him. This, the, the, the line of the, the story does not su- suggest that. The story suggests that he was the one who removed himself from God's covering, right? By his disobedience from resisting God's will, instead of remaining under the covenant of blessing, right? He placed himself um, under a situation where he experienced the curses instead of the blessings. And this is all done in God's sovereign will. So you can say God is responsible for the evil spirit that came upon him because in the context of of the Deuter- of Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomy history which includes you know the kings and and the, the Joshua's all of that 
anything that happens happens because God wills or God allows it. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Saul was following, he was attempting to follow in God's footsteps and then decided that, you know, he was just starting to have, going to start having his own way. And then there it is. This last one, um, it's actually interesting enough that my, my co-host, my new co-host decided to show up because this is literally his favorite Bible story. So I, I, I thought about this one when I was reading this question. So this question is pretty much referring to the story of David and Goliath and kind of the whole chapter. So it says, the story of David and Goliath is loved by many children. Doesn't that story teach them to be cruel? So I just want to add a little caveat. So mm -hmm. this is my son's favorite Bible story. Yeah. Matthew, Matthew will walk around with his quote unquote slingshot and he'll say that he's going to slay the giants and all this stuff like that. But the one thing is that I've noticed personally is that by teaching him that he only did it because God allowed him to mm. was what he'll be. And he'll literally say, Jesus gave me the power, you know, so. I don't, my personal opinion is that if you teach them the genesis, the reasoning behind the story, then the answer is no. So that's my, you know, just mommy opinion, but I would like to hear your opinion as well, of course. Right. So I mentioned something earlier about this story and about the gods. Now, remember um, with the Ark of the Covenant, how Israel thought that because God was among them, they would go out and defeat the Philistines. Rather, they were defeated. The Ark was taken. The Ark was taken to the Philistine communities. And then the ark was creating havoc, right? Because we saw a preview, right, of a battle between David and Goliath in that situation between the ark of the covenant and Dagon. What happened is, right, they placed the, 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 the ark of the covenant in, in this temple where Dagon is. In the morning, they found Dagon uh, on his face. They came again, putting up, fall over, and I think the arms fell off. And they got the message that the God of Israel was more powerful than their God. <laughs> right? Right? Um, so here it comes out now on the stage. This is the, this is the biggest example of the power of God, Israel's God over the gods of the Philistine. Now, instead of going into battle in terms of, um, you know, army against army, they went into, into a duel. One man against one man. And notice the, 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 in the story, the calling upon God throughout. Right? David is calling upon God, and, and um, David says that this Philistine has defiled the God of Israel. It's not me, it's, the, it's not Israel so much, it's the God of Israel. So David is placing his battle with, with Goliath as a spiritual battle, right? He, he's very clear about that, that it's a spiritual battle. It is the God of Israel versus the God of the Philistines, right? But that battle is taken through taking place through human instrumentalities. Humans are, but battle is being fought in, in the human scene. You are right to, to mention to Matthew that this is a spiritual battle and that David won the battle because God was on his side. Is it cruel? Is it violent? Yes, it is. Especially after David uh, um, hits Goliath and he takes his own sword, go over, goes over and beheads him. Right. Um, that's that's graphic. Right. But the, the, the story behind it is that the God of Israel can use. Right. And, and you hear it in some sermons and children's stories. The God of Israel is so powerful that the God of Israel could use a, a, um, a small stone in the hand of a small, inexperienced soldier, inexperienced boy to defeat a soldier 
who has been battling from he was a youth. So it's a it's a story about the power of God being on display. While there is evidence of violence in the, in the story because it's a, it's a battle, it's a war, there is still evidence um, that it is a battle of the gods and that God, the God of Israel is still stronger than Dagon, the God of, of the Philistines. So we can tell the story in a way that sanitizes <laughs> the violence, the, 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 the violence in the story, um, so that children appreciate that God can... God sees them as small as they are. And uh, this is a good story for those children who are being bullied in schools or, or other places to know that they that um, God sees them, God will stand up for them um, in, in those circumstances. Not to encourage them to get a sling and, and, and a stone and, and hit the bigger boy or something like that. We don't want the violence. Um, but find means and ways of not necessarily spiritualizing, and it's not a spiritualizing because the story does suggest that the story is about, you know, God being, giving Israel the victory. But telling the story as out is meant to be told, that it's God who actually gave David the victory and God can give us the victory in our, in our circumstances. I like that you mentioned it's a good story to teach them even for if they're being bullied or anything like that. Because again, as I, as you know, we go through any Bible story and we get to this David and Goliath story, he doesn't, I, I, I can already see that he doesn't take it as a, a way to be mean and bully people or, or he does, oh, and there he has his slingshot. I don't know if you could hear him. He has his slingshot. So he doesn't think of it about being cruel. He thinks of it as being strong because God gives him the strength and he'll literally do this. God gave me the strength, you know? So it's, it's a good thing to know that he, because of God giving you the strength, you can overcome anything. And he's three years old and he understands that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's a, an easy way to kind of teach your kids about leaning on God for anything that they're going through, including bullying and things like that. So actually, good job as a mom. Good job. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> So that actually concludes our um, this episode of Bible and Maths. Um, so for next week, everybody, we would like you to read 1 Samuel 19 to 2 Samuel 11. Um, if you have any questions while you're going through that one, please text those questions to 954-388-8780. But the, the key right here is make sure that you are reading each day. Don't, don't try to, you know, speed read it all one day. Don't, you know, the best bet is to take in a little bit every single day, set a couple chapters aside, read them. If you fall behind, use audiobook, use whatever you can to kind of catch up when you can. But for you to understand it and take everything in, the, the best suggestion is definitely to read a little bit every day. Um, for next week, you will have Pastor Paul and Lenny Anderson answering all of your questions. Uh, so just be prepared. If you have anything, just go ahead, send that in and we will get that addressed for you. Um, so Pastor McCoy, before we close, could you just give a quick overview of what we are going to be reading about in first Samuel 19 to second Samuel 11? Right. So even though the book is, is named after Samuel, we are well to see that the major figure is going to be David. Um, in the remaining chapters of, of first Samuel, we're going to see the regression of Saul and the progression of, of, of David to prominence, right? We're going to see the, the, the conflict between them. And then we're going to see how, how David's life as king, what, what, is king what, is, what is David like as a king? What is Israel's um, state under him? And how is he living according to the principles that God has set up for a king to live by? What is his heart like? 
we're going to explore those things um, um, with Pastor Paul in, in, the, in, the, in the next session. So that sounds like a, a good chapter to, to catch up on and, and make sure you're ready for that discussion. All right, guys. So as we... Um, as you read those chapters, just make sure if you can invite a family member, invite a friend, invite your coworkers to read it with you. It's a it's a very good discussion to have, and it does help generate some questions that we will be able to answer for you on the next episode. Um, so I just want to thank you, Pastor McCoy, for your time. I want to thank Karina for being my co-host this evening. Um, and I want to thank you viewers for tuning in. We're really excited to see you guys coming back every week and, and just enjoying this discussion. Um, so Pastor McCoy, could you please pray to close for us? Sure, definitely. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for the ability to read your words and to learn from it. We ask that all lives will be consecrated to you and that your spirit will be upon us, uh, that we can live fruitful and flourishing lives. We have engaged some difficult questions this evening. Some, one of the most difficult being um, uh, couples or, or, you know, partners who want to have children but are unable to. I pray your blessings upon them, that you will have them understand your will in their lives regarding this matter. And we just pray that they'll find peace and, and comfort in those moments of loneliness and those moments of questioning and wandering and worry. Apart from that, we thank you for our viewers. We pray that this uh, episode will be a blessing to them as they prepare for the next episode to come. Keep us safe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you everyone for turning into the um, Bible and Mass this evening and we look forward to seeing you next week. Plantation SDA Church presents the Bible and Mast. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30 p.m our weekly discussion from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with the Bible Unmasked.